One day, Jesus begins to tell some stories to a group of his followers. And I think the first two, they were probably going, I have no idea what he's talking about. And then he made it clear. And, he, he, and if you want, you can look later. It's in, it's in your Bible it's in, or in someone's Bible. It's in the, the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the uh, stories of Jesus' life in the 15th chapter. And he starts out and he, he says, there was, a, there was a shepherd who had some sheep. And he had a hundred and ninety-nine of them there. One of them got lost. So, of course, the shepherd went out and he went after the lost sheep. And they're sitting there going, okay. And then he said, and there was a woman who had a hundred gold coins. And she lost one of them, still had ninety-nine. She, she basically pulled up her bed and she looked everywhere to find that last coin. And then she was thrilled when she had finally found it. Okay? And then he tells this story, a story that's known as the, the prodigal son. He says there was a... There was a man who had two sons. And the younger son came to his father one day and said, Father, give me my share of my inheritance. I'm, I'm taken off. And the culture was equivalent to looking at his father and saying, Look, you're not dead yet, and that's unfortunate. So, could we just pretend you are? Could you just give me the money that I would get after you died and let me go live as if you're no longer on the planet? Because all I want is what I get from you when you're dead. So can I have that? And the father says, okay, here's uh, your share of the inheritance. And the son takes off. He goes off and it says at first he had, he had a big time. He had lots of money and so had lots of friends. And over time that money dwindled and so did the friends. And he found himself one day Feeding cattle and or feeding pigs and then uh, eating the scraps of what they were they were given the pea pods because he had nothing else. He was a son who was born into great wealth, with a father who loved him deeply, and who promised to provide for him, would always be there for him. He lived as if he had no such thing, and so one day he runs out of everything and gets caught up short. And as he's sitting there, he does not go, how have I forgotten? I am loved by a father who would always care for me and who would love me even if I screwed up. He will always be there for me. He does not go there. He goes to another place. He says, what am I doing here? Even my father's servants have a better life than I have. I know what I'll do. I'll go back home and I'll go to my father and I'll say, father, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy to be your son. And so just let me be one of your servants. I'll work in the land and just, you know. I'm not coming back to you as my father. It's not what I'm after. I just need a little help. And so he makes up his mind to go back and he heads back and he's rehearsing his speech in his head. And as he sees his father and his father, for some strange reason, is running out toward him. And as his father gets closer, the son launches into a speech. Father, I am not worthy to be your son. Sounds strangely almost like a perfunctory prayer. Oh, father, I'm not worthy to be your son. But if you would just treat me as one of your servants, he's about halfway through the speech when the father says, grab the robe and 
grab the, look at my son, his sandals are torn and he's ragged. Would you throw the robe on him and put a ring on his finger and he throws his arms around him and the son is not happy, he's bewildered. This is not what he expected. Wasn't even on the surface what he was looking for. Just wanted a little help. And the father ushers him back and says, my son who was lost has now found. What would I do but rejoice? Now, there is much more to that story that I won't tell today. There's a part of me that believes that if I was left with one story to understand uh, life, that would be it because of all the edges to it. But for the purpose of today, we will stop there. We are in a series called Gravity, as Kurt said. We've said that gravity exists. Every single Sunday, if I go like that, that will happen. Every time, without fail. It is a fundamental fact of our reality. And we have said that the gospel also, the story of God bringing people back into a relationship with himself through Jesus Christ is the fundamental reality that we are called to deal with. And last week I said as we began to explore that, that humanity in this story can be understood in two parts. Humanity is beautiful and humanity is broken. And we explored how if we don't fully apprehend who we were created to be, then we will be doomed to live our lives comparing ourselves to others, either shrinking them if we can or somehow climbing over the top of them. But that the gospel, the truth, that there's a God who loves us and called us back to himself provides a stable nobility, a place where I can stand and be called to be nobody other than who I was made to be, which is far greater than any comparative mode I would choose. Well, that was last week. This week, we look at the other side. Humanity is beautiful, but broken. Or as the Bible refers to it, fallen. And the heart of fallenness is depicted in that story, and it is isolation. The heart of fallenness is not that you're not that good a person. It's not that you smoke and you shouldn't. It's not that you drink and that you shouldn't. It's not that you sleep around. Any of those things, we can discuss at any point the pros and cons and what the wherefores and why you should and why you shouldn't and all those sorts of things. But that is not what fallenness is. Any one of those which would be wrong is only a function of isolation. The fundamental factor of our fallenness is that we are isolated, separated, cut off. And this drives a whole series of things. We are isolated from ourselves, which is what we talked about last week. We are isolated from others. But fundamentally, we're isolated from God. And the story of the gospel is how to break that isolation and to bring you back. I'm going to hopefully demonstrate this by the end of this message, but that the one of the primary ways we try to end the isolation, if we feel like there's something amiss, got to get right with God, one of the primary ways we'll attempt to, to address that will make the isolation worse, and that is religion. And so I want to compare the difference between a religious life and the life the gospel's all actually calling you to. And it essentially looks like this. That son, that 
prodigal, the son who went away, lived as if he had no father. He lived as an orphan. One of the phrases that Jesus uses in, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, is he looks at his followers who are wondering how they're going to cope with life ahead of them. And he says, I won't leave you as orphans. Interesting. I really wonder, they sit there and go, I won't leave you as orphans. Not sure where you're going here, Jesus. Orphans. If we are not connected rightly to God, we live as orphans. And that's a metaphorical concept that sort of weaves its way throughout the Bible, which is essentially communicates this. An orphan lives as if they are on their own. No one has their back. If they succeed, they succeed on their own. If they fail, they fail on their own. An orphan must protect everything it has, and it must live a guarded life. It has to be careful. If I'm an orphan and nobody else is there for me, then I can only afford to give away so much. I can only afford to care so much. Because if I get exposed, nobody's covering my, you know what, it's all me. And so the son goes away from his father and lives as if there is no father and he is on his own. And it doesn't go well. But even if it had, he'd have been left with the same concept. I'm on my own. Now, why is that so bad? I mean, as Kurt says, you can accomplish great things by believing nobody's got your back, right? You can become driven But in the end, you live a pretty bound up, unfree life. Because my joy, my acceptance is all negotiable, variable, and can change at a moment's notice. What the son does when he comes back is he takes a religious approach to being isolated from God. I know what I'll do I'll go back and I'll make a speech. I'll offer a prayer. I'll get what I need. This is a very common approach for us in Christianity. The Christian religion is this. You walk into a church, and this is what you're told. Okay? You're feeling like there's a little bit of something not right in your life. You know? And you're thinking, maybe I'll, get a little bit of, maybe I'll get a little bit of religion, and I'll feel better. I don't know why you thought that. You saw, some, you saw a, a televangelist on TV. You talked to a friend. You saw a commercial. Something made you go, maybe if I get a little religion, my life will be a little better. And so you walk into a church, and this is the message you hear. Jesus said to love one another. He said to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said to love your enemies. And you went, really? That's crazy. Seriously. I'm not, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. That's crazy. If you are isolated from God and you're on your own and your life, how well it goes or how poorly it goes, depends completely on yourself, then that's crazy. I'm going to love my enemies. Let me get this straight. So the people who are trying to hurt me, this is Christianity. The people who are trying to hurt me, I'm supposed to be nice to. Okay, what happens? What happens when they take from me what I need? What do I do then? I'm supposed to love you all, apparently, as much as I love myself. 
So either I can pretend not to love myself very much or fake it. I, I can't afford to love you as I love myself because nobody's got my back. I'm on my own. And so, thus begins religion. Apparently, what God wants from me is he wants me to pretend to care about other people. And so I give as much religious duty as I feel like I can. And sometimes it even feels like a lot, but I'm, it's like I've got a, a bag of resources here. And I don't mean money. This is my life. And I'm, I'm doling out what I feel like I can afford. How much time I feel I can afford to give somebody. How much emotion. And I'm always asking, is this enough, God? Have I done enough to be right? Is my speech good enough? Was my prayer strong enough? Did I come to enough church services? Did I give to enough money? Is 10% enough? Is 20% what? Do I have to serve two hours a week or five hours a week? I don't know, but since I'm on my own and since I believe I only get what I deserve, then some people just say, well, I'm going to be really religious. Because if I'm really religious, then I'm going to be better than the rest of you and God's going to be hard-pressed to not give me what I want. And in the end, that religious view of life will get you nothing. Because the whole point is to bridge the isolation between you and God. And the truth is, all this does is it makes it worse. Because if I really believe that what God is doing is he's telling me to do things that are unreasonable, if God doesn't have my back, if I'm not connected with him, if I am not loved like a lion in a song we're going to sing later with a love that is as strong as death, if I am not in this grip of grace of my Father, then God is asking me to do unreasonable things. And so I'll do them, sort of, but there's no relationship with God. It's like doing what your parents say when you don't want to. It's like following the rules of the school when you think they're stupid. I'll do as much as I need to to not get in trouble. No more, no less. Because there's no life in them. And then maybe I won't get called into the principal's office. Maybe. And maybe I'll get called in less than you do. Religion is the antithesis of the gospel. Because God wants not for you to act a little better or love people a little bit more. He wants you. Doesn't want you to be religious. He doesn't want you to get some godness in your life. He's calling you back into a relationship with himself. Period. The gospel is the story of a return. And it's a return from isolation. And the problem is, we still think we're orphans. We still think somehow it's got to be done on our own. I didn't like my message in the first service at all. Like, you're hearing something completely different. Seriously. I'm, I'm not kidding. That's also not hyperbole. And as soon as I finished it, this is what I wanted to do. Run. Hide. Uh, or somehow make it work again. You can tell me afterwards if it did. 
But, I mean, there's all this feeling of performance that, like, if I'm not performing well enough, I just don't want to talk to anybody. Can I be honest? I just like to be left alone. There is no connection if I believe my performance affects relationship. If I believe God is up there asking me to be a good religious boy, then most of my life I am ducking and weaving. I've got my eyes down. I'm trying to avoid his glance because what his glance is going to be is, come on. There's a line from an old song by a guy that most of you, Blair and I will remember, named Keith Green, who he had some harsh, harsh lyrics. And one of them was, he was speaking in the place of God. If you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming at all. That is a religious view of life. Hey, if you can't be a really good religious person, then don't bother. Don't waste my time. In that view, when the son comes back to the father, what the father ought to say is, I don't know, I'll give you a trial run as a servant. Let's see how you do. Work hard. Keep your nose clean. Don't, you know, wish me dead again. And maybe, maybe someday, you know, you can be a top servant. The gospel is crazy. It's crazy. Seriously, I'm a father. My son comes to me and says, hey, dad, wish you were dead. Not willing to go to jail for it, though. But could I just act like you are and take all your money? And then comes back to me a few years later without any of the money and says, hey, you know, I could just be one of your, you know, one of your servants. I don't have servants. But, you know, I knew that. <laughs> Getting, metaphors all break down. Now, I might accept him back, but first I'm going to go, have you learned your lesson, young man? Do you know what you put your mother and I through over the last three years? She's aged 20 years since you left. I'm, I'm willing, I'm fully willing to believe this is what I would do. And what God does is he shows this picture of the father who comes running out and grass. He won't even let the son get his apology out. He doesn't care. The gospel is a story of a return to relationship, a return from the cold, a return out of isolation, which breeds freedom and life. And religion will kill you, even Christian religion. So, what does that mean at the end of the day? I've been a Christian for 32 years. I became a Christian when I was one. <laughs> I was precocious. I've been a Christian for 32 years. And today, after the first service, when my message ends, I act like an orphan. I act like my performance is what matters. Do I care? Of course I do. Should you care about how you do in life? Of course you should. But I act as if for the moment I'm on my own. Some of you have been a Christian for Christians for a long time. 
And the question that resonates in your head is this. I know theoretically that God loves me and is my father. But how do I know he's going to be there for me really? Wouldn't it be better just to hedge my bets? Protect myself? Be very careful about how vulnerable I become in life and how much I offer to anybody, least of all to God. could do that for our whole lives. In the end, to the extent we do that, we just miss out. We miss out on the actual gospel, which is not a story of performance. It's a story of a love that is striking and quite honestly crazy. See, now I understand when he loves me that much, right? He doesn't love me based on my, my performance. He loves me in spite of it. He calls me his father who throws his arms around me at the moments when I probably deserve it least. Now, his other teaching, it's not so that it sounds less crazy, it's that the craziness matches. Love your enemy. Why? Because I don't have anything on the line. I have somebody who has my back. He will always have my back. He will always be the offering. Jesus says this phrase over and over again because he knows people in the end don't believe it. He says, I won't forsake you. I won't leave you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You are not on your own. Isolation is a product of the fall. It's not what you were made for. You were made for a connection with God. To the extent we live in that, we begin to live free. We serve out of joy. We love because we want to. Our hearts become open. To the extent we don't, it constricts pretty tightly. See, the gospel is fundamental. It's not a little ancillary part of your life. As we close today, there's two things I want you to think about. First of all, if you're somebody, as I told you, I I don't have a hidden agenda in this series. I have an actual agenda. And one of my agendas for you all is that for those of you who are outside of faith, who walked in today or last week or the week before, believing you need a little shot of religion, believing you're you're not sure at all what you believe about Jesus, but you're exploring a little bit, my goal for you by the end of this series, and today would be fine, is for you to come in faith, is for you to go, you know what, that's what I want. I, I, I don't want to live my life based on performance. I want, if there's really a God who loves me that much, who sent his son, not to make me a better person, but to pay for all the sin I've committed, to, to, to collapse the isolation between me and God, and bring me into a relationship with him that I cannot lose, for which my soul was made, I'm in. Today, if you know nothing else, if you're not sure what you believe about any part of the Bible or about Christians in general or about the church, but if this rings true, it's because it is and it was made for you. And I encourage you to wait in today to make that simple decision. For those of you who are in faith and have been for anywhere from a week to 32 years, the call to you is this. I want you to examine this this week. I want you to examine your relationship with God. And by that, I do not mean I want you to examine how good your spiritual practices are. 
I don't want you to examine your performance. I want you to examine your relationship with God. The difference is this. If I just say this, that I want to examine my relationship with my wife, I don't mean this. Well, what's my relationship with my wife like? Well, last week, we spent two evenings together, and we had some decent conversations, and we haven't had a fight in this long. That, that's not analysis of my relationship with my wife. That's a detailed chronicle list of some events. Don't chronicle your events. Ask yourself the question, what's my relationship with my God like? Am I living with him as my father? Am I still treating him as the principal? In the moments of your life, if you will ask that question this week, what you'll discover will be something you may not like, which is that how often you live as an orphan. How often you live based, basically believing that it's all up to you. It's in those moments that transformation happens. When you take that very point and you chronicle that and ask God to teach you what it looks like to have a father in heaven. Because this, I will say to you without any fear of contradiction, this is the story of the Bible and it is the only story of the Bible. It is a story of return to a father who embraces children who simply say, I want a relationship with you again. I was lost. I was orphaned. I want, I want to come back home. Let's pray.